It's episode 78 of Milwaukee's Tailgate Baseball Podcast, your weekly Milwaukee Brewers podcast. I'm Steve Garshinsky, and joining me today are J.P. Breen, and uh, I guess online again is is Ryan Topp, because you didn't want to come into my house of sickness. The house of illness? We are getting ravaged by the flu here, so. Oh, are you too? Oh, yeah, everybody. Every, it's it's going through everyone, so it's it's that time of year. Everybody you needs. Look, you do look a little pasty. Everybody needs their own bubble to record from. It's what you get for having the children come in with their germs. I swear they're just little freaking disease diseases running around. So yeah, just disease incubators. Yeah, word of advice to everybody: don't have kids. Man, I tell you, like even though even in classes we've been having people come in and turn in their stuff, and they just like cough on their paper and then hand it to you, and you're like, thanks. <laughs> You're like, I did that once. Do, do you get like, mo- I showed up to just turn in a paper really sick, and the professor's like, You could have emailed it. <laughs> do you give them a B and then just burn it? I'm just like, No, I usually invent it. I was like, That's really thoughtful. Thank you. Just put it there. <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's Professor JP walking around in his hazmat suit. <laughs> do not touch me. Um, yeah. So, but there's also one of my favorite things is learning about. So there's a, a radiation building on campus. <laughs> so and, you take uh, the papers and, over and there. It, 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 there's like radiation research on it, and it was built during the '60s. Um, and but like at Notre Dame, they did a lot of uh, nuclear research for a long time, and so it was helping the the nuclear projects at the University of Chicago. And there was one person that. You know, they brought everything to Notre Dame to like basically radiate the material and then they took it in a bag to Chicago and there was like one person whose job it was to like take the radiated material to Chicago. And I wanted to hear more about that person because I like that even in even in the 50s and 60s, I'm sure you knew that that wasn't good. (laughs) It could. It was probably a bit unhealthy. Did they wear leather pants? I have no idea, but it was just like... They grew leather pants. I'm going to put that in my car and now drive to Chicago. I'm sure it's fine. Yeah, have you guys ever been in the the, uh, reactor at UW-Madison? I did a a couple different tours through their various points when I was a teenager. First, I don't even remember why, but they have a a reactor there. And you're you're desperately trying to be Spider-Man. I just yes, I just remember that they had a pile of lead sitting over in the corner that had actually like sunken the floor in that corner to the point where it was like that that corner of the floor was deeply imprinted by the lead that had been sitting on it for years. I do I do imagine Ryan like hoping he was gonna be Superman or or, or like Spider-Man or just like whatever, being like every single time being like Nope, still ran my 40, 40 meters the exact same speed. No, it was disappointing. I always thought it was going to be cooler than it was. And then Every like, oh, insect yeah, you'd pick just... up, put it on your skin and hope for a bite. But never <laughs> happened. Never happened. So anyways, we're going to get into this uh, so we can actually talk about some kind of baseball activities that are happening. Well, okay. I was going to say, like, either that Orion, like, went to the, then went to the batting cages and he's like, nope, nope, I'm not going to hit this one over the fence. No, no signing bonus there. So, uh, yeah. if if you like this intro about the flu, radiation, and Ryan's quest for uh, for baseball be- star, yeah, becoming a baseball star with superhero powers, uh, remember you can find this podcast uh, on Apple Podcasts and on Spotify. Uh, we want listener questions, so follow Milwaukee's Tailgate on Twitter at MKE Tailgate. Email questions to milwaukees.tailgate at gmail.com or follow our Facebook page. You can also follow the three of us on Twitter, and you'll find that in our Milwaukee's Tailgate Twitter bio. 
Finally, if you'd like to support the podcast, you can visit patreon.com slash mketailgate. Our ball and glove patrons receive the monthly minor league extra podcast, which just came out, right? Certainly did. It did. We have uh, a good hour, a little bit over an hour of kind of breaking down the state of the brewer system, went through a bunch of uh, listener questions. We started to kind of break down a couple of the uh, farm system rankings across across Major League Baseball to talk about, you know, the Brewers are down at 25 if you look at Keith Law um, and kind of trying to figure out, you know, what what causes a huge drop? I mean, they were number eight last year, all the way down to 25. Is it just about the graduations? Did other people take a step back? What At what point should Brewers fans be worried about the farm system being ranked so lowly? A lot of things like that. So, um, and despite that, not a lot of positive positivity coming out of that podcast, actually. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, if if people want more info on the uh, minor league system, uh, just become a patron. You can get that and all of the back episodes too. So, uh, feel free to subscribe. Milwaukee Steelgate is sponsored by Carbon Four Brewing and their English style malt bombs and perfectly balanced hop grenades. You know them for the great beers like Dragon Flute, Block Party, and their flagship Fantasy Factory IPA. This Friday, head over to the tap room for a small batch release of Poppenhoff Brute IPA. And it's got a picture of David Hasselhoff on there. So it's Poppenhoff. That's Poppen- an amazing pun. Amazing. Uh, it's a pale, dry, highly effervescent IPA with bitterness turned way down. Uh, so check that one out. And then on Friday, March 1st, K4 is re-releasing Tokyo Sauna. It's a citrusy and sugar cookie sweet pale ale. So Yeah, we've had that. That's good. Yeah. I enjoyed that a lot. So that one's one of their seasonal releases. So go that one you can find packaged. Uh the other one you gotta go to the brewery on Kinsman Boulevard. Um and also get twenty percent off of merch in the K4 web store. Yeah. And uh, use the promo code MKE Tailgate. As always, check out carbon4.com for more information. Carbon 4, beer brilliance. Milwaukee's Tailgate is also sponsored in part by Sound Devices, a premier manufacturer of audio production gear and they're located right here in Wisconsin. Sound Devices gear is used worldwide and is found on the set of Oscar winning films and popular TV shows. And if you're looking to create a professional sounding podcast, check out the Mix Pre 3, which JP currently uses, and the Mix Pre 6, which I am recording on. For more information, visit sounddevices.com. Okay, so exciting news. Players reported this week, and we have some uh, actual kind of baseball activity going on at is it AmFam Park of Phoenix? I think it's Am, the AmFam Fields. AmFam Fields. That's that's right. There's multiple fields there. Yeah, and the pictures coming out of that place look awesome. Like it looks like a really cool place. Yes. Yeah, it looks beautiful. Yeah, the, they did an incredible amount of work in a very short amount of time, but it it sounds like they got it all complete. So um, yeah, anybody going down there this spring, make sure to like, let us know how everything is. We're curious. Absolutely. But give send us some pictures. We'll put it up on, uh, on the Twitter account. If there are good pictures coming from AmFam fields at Maryvale. Yeah. There wasn't quite the outrage room. Like how good the locker room is. People are saying it's better than any locker room they've been to in any big league park. Yeah. Yeah. The Eric Thames had the big like, wow, I can't believe this is our locker room kind of reaction to it. So, well, I do think one of my favorite things was not anything having to do with actual, you know, the the renovations itself, but a lot of the videos that they've been putting out about people and and it had the like everyone kind of doing an interview, answering questions about their teammate. It was, you know, who is the most late or who is always late for the team? 
and every single person said Jeremy Jeffress. And then it got to Jeffress and they asked and he laughed and he said, yeah, that's me. <laughs> I'm always the latest. And so they've had a good, uh, a good amount of social media content coming out if people are starting to get the itch and want to see some of their favorite brewers down and talking about baseball and their teammates. Yeah, so at the end of this week, I think we get our first uh, games. They start actually doing a little bit of competition, I guess, if that's what you want to call it. Yep, and there's going to be a large number of games on TV and streaming this spring. So I think every, pretty much everything has some sort of coverage, uh, or at least any day there's a game, there will be some sort of coverage because the split squad stuff, they don't send people out to necessarily both of them. But if there's a game that day, you can either listen to it or watch it. on some level yeah i want to say there's like 18 games that are being televised yeah it's a lot it just keeps growing every year and if you want to follow on twitter i'm sure you can get play-by-play analysis too i do want to know how the infield drills are going so i think all the beat writers should definitely you know keep those updates coming as much as possible you know, like I, I sympathize because, right, like, yeah, the beat writers, obviously, they, they have to do a lot of work. They have to talk to a lot of people. They have to to kind of create content all throughout. But like in spring training, that's got to be so hard for the first couple of weeks. Like you do a lot of human interest stories. I'm sure you talk a lot about expectations for the year. But at some point, you're just like, they're doing a lot of drills and I have to write something about it. Well, and then yeah, the, the best fielding practice is the best. But then also the best shape of their lives uh, stories have been ruined now over the years since that's just become kind of a thing. Like, I don't know how anybody can like legitimately write that story without knowing like they're going to get mocked for putting one of those out. Well, and there are legitimate best shape of their life stories that some dude shows up like having dropped like 30 pounds and looks like cut like a beat writer has to talk about that even though they know dude joe guys like joey meyer are not on this roster anymore who's cutting 30 pounds uh like players you think jimmy nelson lost a bunch yeah there aren't many guys i mean i will say nick zettel on twitter did make sure that he asked us if we're in our best shape of our lives and for me i'm not going to presume to speak for either of you that's a resounding no nope Nope. <laughs> no, absolutely not. I don't feel as if it's going to be a great season for me, but we'll see if I can kind of buck the aging trend and the age curves and see if I can actually produce another productive season. But as of right now, it doesn't feel great. It only I, I'm, gets worse, man. I'm embracing every aged curve I have, so that's kind of how that goes. Okay, we do have some news coming out of Brewers Camp early. We got a little Hernan Perez news uh, that Adam McKelvey wrote about. He said Hernan Perez was actually playing injured last season. He had a, he had a wrist injury and he had surgery in the off season to fix that. So um, yeah, that's that's tough for you, man. I know that I know how much you love Hernan Perez and you got him on your phone and everything. That's got to be tough to hear that he was hurting last year. I want Hernan to be 100%. That that's my guy. So, uh let's get Hernan as healthy as possible. We need him to play every position. And I don't think you can catch if you have a, a an injured wrist. So, I think maybe this year we can get him back there as an emergency uh, catcher. Well, I don't know. If Ryan was talking about having three different catchers on the team, if they're going to have three different catchers on the team, I don't know if Hernan Perez is going to get a time behind the plate. Yeah, I mean, at some point, he's got to catch. they they got to get him behind the plate for a game. 
okay do that but before we get too far into his catching future um i guess what's the expectation for perez this season you know he was kind of the super utility guy but with an injured wrist he was a liability at the plate he kind of had a little bit more success the previous season a little bit i think he hit with some more power more than anything um well, is, Perez was actually pretty good against lefties last year. It's it's tough to figure out like how sustainable that is, just because the samples are so small and it's kind of fluctuated over the course of the year. But unless they add another person who's going to kind of fill in at second base, maybe take some time at third base, um, you know, we've we've talked a lot about that over the course of the po- uh, the the off season on the podcast and trying to figure out, you know, like. Talked about Estrubal Cabrera. We talked about you know Jed Lowry. We talked about uh, Daniel Murphy and just kind of like going down the line. And we were like, who is it that's going to be able to step in? And and as of right now, it just does seem like Aaron like Aaron Perez. Or do you guys think it it's going to be Spanchenberg at second base? But as of right now, I mean, it kind of just feels like it'll be Aaron Perez spelling Travis Shaw at third against tough lefties, and maybe he'll spend some time at second base. But other than that, it's just going to be more of the same, really. Yeah, last year he had 100 and, uh, sorry, 197 at bats against right-handed pitchers and 119 against left-handed pitchers. And if you can get that number to be closer, where he's in there basically all the time against lefties and just rarely in there against righties, I think he could put up a good uh, uh, rate stat season where he actually goes out and puts up you know mid sevens, maybe even high sevens. Uh, OPS plus, but to do that, you're sort of limiting him to just those situations. So the more situationally he's used, the more it'll benefit him and the team. But part of what makes Hernan Perez so valuable is that you can plug him in, in so many different places and so many different ways over the course of a, over the course of a season. So how limited they're going to be in that is, remains to be seen yeah it'll be it'll be really interesting to see where they want to play him right because i mean we talked a lot about the fact that second base he's not that great defensively third base he's fine um but the vast majority of his defensive value actually comes at the corner outfield spots but at this point i don't necessarily know how much he's going to spend time at the corner outfield spots i i would imagine that he is kind of the the right-handed bench guy that they that they can put out in left field um you know especially late in late in the game if they want to be able to get ryan braun out in terms of defensive issues but ben gamble's gonna be that guy um and so maybe if they don't if they like the matchup better with aaron Perez, but really what he allows them to do is to be able to mix and match down the stretch do some double switches kind of manipulate the roster so they can keep guys like josh Hader in for a couple of innings and not have to worry about you know, pinch hitting the next inning or things like that. It just gives a little bit more flexibility there. Yeah, when I think Ryan more Braun's than anything, hurt. I was going to say more than anything, I think Perez remains the super utility. I don't think we can ever expect him to just be penciled in at a position night in and night out. I, I just don't see a situation where that happens. I think they tried to, you know, if it's Spangenberg uh, starting at second base for a while, I think it would go there, and then you'd use Perez to fill in where you need. He's still going to get his at-bats. He's just going to move around a little bit more because that's his value. Right. I was going to say, when Ryan Braun's hurt, Perez becomes <laughs> when? your, your it's lefty inevitable. against. Well, I mean, he misses time. So he will uh, – Perez 
will, I think, be the, the primary left fielder against left-handed pitching if Ryan Braun isn't healthy. Right. You know? like, so, but that's the short side of the platoon. Like, that's never going to be huge value. Right. No, it is the short side of the platoon. But, you know, I think he is really now their fifth outfielder, right? Because we're not anticipating there being much likelihood that Tyrone Taylor or Troy Stokes Jr. break with the team. I mean, we'll see them at some point during the season in all likelihood, but we're not anticipating them to be on the opening day roster. So Perez does become the fifth outfielder. Yeah, and it'll be interesting to see what happens as the year goes around, uh, goes along because, you know, you'll certainly have your Ben Gamble, you know, appearances quite a bit. But, I mean, Mauricio Dubon's likely to make the team at some point this year. He actually played a lot of center field in the AFL a couple of years back before the Brewers traded for him. He actually showed quite well um, in center field that a lot of people liked him in center. And obviously he can play some shortstop, which is valuable for the Brewers, especially because we don't really know offensively what we're going to get from Orlando Arcia. But Man, I still I I know that like it's hard to know at this point and and who knows what's happening with free agency, but like it it's still I still think that they're going to that they're going to sign somebody for the infield. Like I I, I don't know if it's going to be Mustakas, everyone's talking about that. You've still got some guys, you know, you still got your Josh Harrisons who haven't signed. You still have a lot of guys that that I think could fill in and be productive for the Brewers. It just feels like they they still have another move in them for the infield. Well, and Hardercourt wrote about that earlier uh, this week. He said that Travis Shaw is open to moving back to second base if the Brewers bring Mike Moustakis back. Um, I guess, is that going to be the best use of, uh, you know, rearranging these guys on the field if they're signing another player? Because personally, I think, you know, if you bring in a Josh Harrison, you can move around. That gives you more flexibility. Where Moustakis seems to kind of lock in a bunch of positions as they are on the field uh, without creating that flexibility because Shaw was a bit of an experiment at second base last season, but I don't think anybody expected that to be a long-term, like multiple season solution. No. And it still seems that way though. Shaw is open to the idea of moving back. I mean, that's what the whole point of this was that he said he was open to that idea because he's good friends with Mike Moustakis and would love to have him back on the team. But you're right. It does cut their flexibility and what they can do at other positions. Well, and Shaw, Shaw also recognizes he's not stupid. He knows that that's his ticket to a longer career as well, being able to play multiple positions. I mean, locking himself into third base is is foolish for him going long term. Though, If you're in a position in which you sign Mike Moustakis, I'm not concerned about the first month of the year whatsoever. It's once Kessinger comes up, what then happens? Um there are only so many at-bats I can go around. I mean, in some ways, you would say, Shaw, if he can probably play some first base. He can play some second base. He can play some third base. Like, he can move around a little bit. Moustakas is pretty much going to be a third baseman whenever he plays. He's probably not going to move around all that much. But I'm not, again, like, I don't, I'd like to see them spend money elsewhere, whether it's going to be in the starting rotation, obviously, if they talk about Dallas Keuchel, if they talk about a Josh Harrison, if they talk, you know, I've talked a lot about the fact that I'd like to see them pony up for for Marwin Gonzalez. Like, there are a lot of things that you can still look at. If Moustakis is coming in, he's not offering the flexibility. He's then having, he's kind of forcing other players, in this, in this case, Travis Shaw, to become the flexibility that you can somehow then make Moustakis worthwhile. 
Yeah, and we also have uh, some talk of Shaw being willing to uh, take a contract extension, which I think most players would want to do. You want that, um, want to lock in the money when possible. Uh, he's currently in arbitration right now. He's making four point six million. Um, I guess what's your long term outlook on Travis Shaw, and how hard should they pr- uh, pursue an extension with him? I think he's kind of the ideal guy to do this with at this point. Uh, I like extending hitters more than I like extending pitchers generally. They just you know tend to age a little bit more evenly, and he is a proven hitter. I know that DRC uh, absolutely loves his ability to hit the ball and thinks he's going to have you know a really good season again this year. It's I think it would be a great thing to get locked into. I do think long term he there's a home for him at first base if so if you sign him to a five six year extension you can do that with kind of feeling safe in the knowledge that eventually he's going to move over to first base and probably be a plus defender there and hit easily well enough for the position but that there's no immediate need to to do that so and i think there's also a something to be said for the fact that look how willing he has been to move around the diamond and do things that are not comfortable for him for the good of the team and for, you know, the good of winning. Like there's a value in having that kind of guy on your team. He's clearly not a malcontent. A lot of guys would have bristled at the idea of, you know, Travis Shaw is a a pretty proven big league commodity and he was more than willing to go over to second base. So where he, you know, he knew it was going to be difficult. So there's value in that. That's not a selfless decision for him, though. I mean, you, you, you're you right. There's there's a point to which it does increase his value, but that doesn't mean that everybody would have been willing to do it and to take that on, especially in the middle of a, of a pennant run. I guess. Like, I guess I'm not also not putting that as a badge of honor. Like, that's just, I don't know. In some ways, in in a baseball like the the problem with somebody like Mustakas is that he can only play one position like he's not full and part of the reason why he's talking about the being interested in a contract extension again Travis Shaw is friends with Mike Mustakas who has consistently seen himself screwed over by free agency the last two years Travis Shaw's not stupid. If you can lock in that money now, he understands what's going on. Yeah, and, but and five, you, five or six years that Ryan threw out now. Uh, is that that's not like a realistic extension at this point because you have a couple factors one he'd be giving up what like two to three years of free agency if he did that and then two if there's a labor stoppage coming up and they restructure how players are paid he could screw himself out of a lot of money yeah i don't see him i don't see him doing anything that long if if anything i see him kind of locking in what he's going to get in arbitration the next couple of years and maybe do like a one year con like one year player option or something like that there. I don't see him doing a long, a long-term deal. And it doesn't make sense for a lot of players to do a long-term deal at this point. No, it doesn't. And if you're, and if you're the Milwaukee Brewers as well, are you really, do you really want to sign somebody to a four or five year contract who then will be early, you know, and again, right. We talk a lot about labor issues, but he'd still be 32, 33 years old and you're, right now looking at him as being more of a platoon guy each year as it goes along like yeah i guess if he's going to be 32 years old and fourth year of contract and be somebody that you don't want to see left-handed left-handed pitching at all and he's only playing first base like great then you've got lucas duda like 
that's not that's not a really long-term valuable piece. And so I don't think that you would see the Brewers want to go in for that long of a deal. I absolutely see the Brewers interested in making sure that his arbitration deals are locked in because that gives them cost certainty. And then much like they did with somebody like Chase Anderson, give themselves a couple like one or two option years that they can then kind of have a buyout. And so it makes some sense for Travis Shaw gives him a little bit of certainty, but the Brewers then have the, the payroll flexibility that they want so much. Yeah, I mean, we're looking at maybe a three or a four year guaranteed deal and then an option year or two on the end of it. You know, no three year deal with two options or a four year deal with one option. Something like that is probably most realistic. I don't see a four year deal happening whatsoever. Buying out two two of his free agency years. No, no, no. That would be we're talking about four years from this moment. So that would be buying out one free agent year. Well, sure, but he already is locked in this year. So you're saying that it would reach it, that it would change what his contract is this year? Right. You'd be giving him a signing bonus up front is generally how that works. You'd do some sort of a rearrangement of right. how you're paying him this year. I guess. So that fine. Yeah. But when we're talking about an extension, we're talking about future years, not necessarily. Yeah. He, he's on the team this year. He's already making over four and a half. You know, there might be a, a few a few dollars tacked onto that, but that's not going to be the meat of what the deal is. So, anyways, moving on, uh, there has some uh, has been some Ryan Braun news. Uh, Adam McKelvey says, as of right now, uh, Ryan Braun playing first base has been shelved. So the grand experiment that started last season kind of fizzled early, and it doesn't look like they're going to do anything to uh, resurrect those plans this season. Um, are we disappointed? I know we all kind of wanted to see Braun play first base a little bit last year, and we didn't really get it very, very much. I wanted to see it because it was going to be fun. Um, but like this year, if the biggest thing that you would need Ryan Braun for, and we talked about it in the past, was, you know, kind of the right-handed partner for Eric Thames at first base. But Aguilar's more than locked that down. It doesn't really seem any any potential situation where you would be putting ryan braun at first base like you would just want aguilar to be there and have braun and braun and left so yeah the whole point of braun to first last year was they had so many outfielders they wanted to create some at-bats for guys like domingo santana and keon broxton and guys like that they aren't in that situation anymore with the outfield it's it's much less crowded so they're perfectly happy to let you know Jesus Aguilar, who had such a good season last year, take the majority of those at-bats and work in Eric Thames potentially as well. I mean, we didn't talk about that when we were talking about the the fourth and fifth outfielder situation, but how much do you guys think we're going to see Eric Thames in the outfield this year? I mean, it's generally not been pretty, but it does get that bat into the lineup, and he can be a tremendous source of power and discipline when he's going well offensively. I mean, early on, Ryan Braun off days. I mean, I, I don't think they want to trot him out very often. Like, that just seems like a recipe for another abbreviated season for Eric Thames. Don't you think so, JP? Yeah, I think as of right now, I and I know that uh, David Stern's MO has been to make sure that he's retaining as much depth as possible at all times and restructuring the opening day lineup to give people you know, use options whenever available. So you keep all the talent that you possibly can. But like Eric, Eric Thames just doesn't really seem to have a home on this year's roster, which is sad, but like, I just don't really know where he fits in because at, at some point you're saying that he's going to be, you know, see some time against some tough righties 
at first base, but most of the time, if you are saying, let's get a left-handed bat in the outfield and give somebody a day off, you're going to put Ben Gamble out there because his defense is valuable and he's actually, you know, competent against against righties. Well, and like we brought it up before, if they have Moustakis on this roster and you need to get Travis Shaw at bats, where are you going to put him? It seems yeah. like being the other side of that platoon at first base, if they go to a platoon there, would be where he would fit in. Or even a soft platoon, right? Yeah. And just like getting a little bit extra room there. I just... And I don't think that Eric Thames has a has a lot of trade value. Um, not because, again, not because he's not a good player, but as we've seen consistently over the past two years, you can apparently just get decent first baseman off the waiver wire every single year. So it'll be interesting to see what happens. I mean, what was it? Corey Dickerson had been traded twice and because everyone's like, well, he's a left-handed power bat who offers no defensive value in the outfield whatsoever. And like teams have basically just been letting him go and he's still competent. And so I just don't understand where, you know, the value would be for a team to go and trade somebody for Eric Thames. They would just wait for the Brewers to have to cut ties and then do it for free. Any final thoughts on Thames, Ryan? I'm always hoping he gets into the lineup and showing that power and discipline. Well, I think everybody's cheering for it. Everybody is cheering for Eric Thames. We all like when Eric Thames plays. And we like Eric Thames like as as a person. Like he seems fantastic. Right. I'd love to see him be have find success in Milwaukee. Yeah. It's just that, you know, there's it's been a crowded situation since he showed up. And with Jesus Aguilar being as good as he has been, it it hasn't really opened up a path to at bats. Now, if the National League goes to the dh sometime and it's it's not going to happen this year obviously they've already said it's not going to happen before 2021 before 2021 oh, i hadn't heard that okay yep then that would be because he does have an option for next year so but after that he's a free agent again so yeah it, it's unfortunate if he was on an american league team and could rotate in at dh a bunch and split some time at first base and maybe an occasional few innings out in the outfield that would be probably more ideal for him than being in a, in a National League club. But but yeah. see, this is this is the point that you get to when you start to have a really deep and successful squad, right? Is like people who are good baseball players get pushed out. That there's just not room. One of the biggest things that the Brewers were able to do during their their rebuilding stint was they could give kind of fringe guys or guys who were really interesting and just needed an opportunity to play over a long period of time to see if they could really, you know, they could stick as big leaguers. And we got to see a lot of those guys finding Travis Shaw, who we were just talking about was one of the guys that like got pushed out of Boston and wasn't going to find any time there. And the Brewers had the flexibility to just let him play. And he was able to kind of obviously turn himself into a very, very valuable player. I mean, he's hit over 30 homers the last two years for the Brewers, but the more success that you have, the more good players you have on the roster, the more competition there is for roster space. Quality guys are going to get pushed off. And so at this point, it does seem to me to be, you know, Eric Thames is just kind of a victim of, of being on a good team. Right. And he would be probably the guy who would get pushed off if they did end up signing Mike Moustakis. Yeah, I, think, I think so too. And, yeah. and he would be, you know, a team like the, the the Padres would would really like. I mean, I know that they've got Eric Hosmer, but, you know, they've had a lot of like reclamation projects. Obviously, a team like the Marlins would be 
and goodness knows the Orioles like to get themselves some left-handed power that don't have defensive value. So like obviously Baltimore would be a place that, that he could look, but I think he would get a big league job pretty much without question. It just, I think most teams and rightfully so would wait for the Brewers to say, well, we're just going to have to cut bait on this, on this one. And then you try to get them on the waiver wire. Yeah. Right. Okay. So uh, moving on, we have a Patreon question from Brian Polakowski. Yes, uh, it looks like most projections are predicting Orlando Arcia will be a one-win player. Are you thinking that's over or underrated or just about right? If he's under, how much of a leash does he get? And baseball prospectus, uh, they're one that that uses a lot of defensive metrics. Like usually, defensive players get a pretty decent uh, boost in their ratings. So if Arcia is still a one-win player, there, I guess. Is he long for this team if he gets off to a really slow start? Well, I think he'd. Uh, yeah, I don't. I don't see any scenario in which I'm worried about him losing his roster spot. Right. I mean, he offers so much defensive defensive value that he's going to be able to have a, a role on the team, especially because a he's such a good clubhouse presence. Obviously, there was a lot last year when he was sent down to AAA to kind of refine himself. Um, Guys like Aguilar, guys like Aaron Perez were really talking about how much that affected them in a negative way. And so there, there is a, a piece of that as well. But it's I, you have to get to the point that you're just so bad offensively. I mean, you have to get to LCD's Escobar level of being bad offensively to, to be as good as he is defensively and not have a home. Yeah, and he has an offensive track record in the big leagues. We've seen what he can do offensively. It wasn't earth shattering, but when a guy goes out and puts up the season he did in 2017, where he was essentially an average bat for a shortstop at the big league level, and he brings that kind of defensive value, there's no reason that the Brewers would cut bait on him anytime soon. So I don't think that's, that's the issue. He, does have to worry as long as they're contending like they are about being marginalized in terms of playing time though, where especially depending on who they might add, like if you brought in a Marwin Gonzalez, that really puts some pressure on him because Marwin Gonzalez could realistically fill in for him at shortstop and, and put some pressure on him and push him that way. Even though it's not necessarily Marwin's best position, he could create a situation where RCS is limited more to some late innings in at shortstop and, you know, getting in that way and not getting the, the number of starter at bats that we sort of assumed he would have been getting by this point in his career. So, man, I don't know about th- this track record. You're talking about, was it like even three months in 2017? Because otherwise you have six months of 18, you probably have three months in 17 and part of that, he had to go down to tri- AAA. That seems like more of a track record of him not being a good hitter in the major leagues than well. I mean, like he something did to finish really... twenty eighteen well too. Yeah, but he also had he also had a three eighty batting average on balls in play in the second half. Sure, but that's not an unheard of part of his. Profile. Yeah, but I mean... nobody nobody watching Arcia when he was hitting late in the season with some more limited at-bats. or And a lot of that was in the playoffs. Nobody looked at him and said, oh, he figured something out and he looks good at the plate and and is also hitting the ball. It was kind of like he had some balls that were finding, you know, some green space, or he popped a couple home runs that we weren't expecting. But, I mean, JP, 
early on you were talking about how his swing looked like a disaster. Did you see anything at the end of the season that showed he made like massive improvements to that? Well, yeah. I mean, I, I think he did look much more comfortable as the year went on. Um, I don't think there's any any question about that. I uh, To Ryan's point about saying that, like, the fact that he had a, you know, 380 batting average on balls and play is not unheard of from his batting. Pro- he's like he's had over a like a 325 batting average on balls and play, including his minor league career once ever. And that was a double A like his, his best ever at, at the major league level is 317. I mean, that's way that's way out of norm for for somebody like Orlando Arcia. Um, but one of the things, if you do, if you kind of dig into what was happening, you know, first, first half to the second half, one of the big reasons why he wasn't productive at all in the first half was he just kept rolling over the ball and, and it was just everything. He was just beating into the ground again and again and again. And one of the things that, you know, he was able to do in the second half is his line drive rate went up his, he was putting the ball on the ground over 60% of the time in the first half and it dropped under 50% in the second half. So he was driving the ball a little bit more. He was starting to actually um, pull the ball a little bit more. Cause like the biggest joke that we talked about on the podcast for a long time was like, if Orlando Arcia was going to get a hit in the first half, it was going to be a liner to the opposite field. And that was just going to be what it is. And he was able to extend on something or he was late. Um, and he was able to kind of hit something to the opposite field. And then, you know, rock would be like, look at you know, using the whole field. That's all you could all that's, you know, a sign of doing things well, but he needed to be able to actually pull the ball and do it with power for a, a, a little bit too to be able to, if you want to use the whole field, you actually have to use the whole field. It's not just using the opposite field as the whole field. Um, but he, his, his pull rate went way up in the second half. He was able to start lining the ball a little bit more. He could hit for a little bit more power. Um, but his approach is still bad. Um, and I think that you're looking best case scenario. If he can hit 255, 260 and, you know, 310, 315 on base percentage and and hit 10 homers over the course of the year. I mean, that that's kind of like what you're really hoping for. Man, that seems well, I mean, like a lot of walks for Arcia, though. I, I, I mean, if he hits 250, 260 and he needs to carry a 315 on base. Yeah, I know. Yeah, I mean, but I think that that's going to be where he has, has to do it. If he hits 260 and has like a 290 on base percentage, it's not going to cut it. Guys, in 2017, in 548 <laughs> plate appearances, he hit 277, 324, 407. As a 22-year-old, sure, like he is not <laughs> the idea that he was like last year looks more like the outlier. If you look at his whole minor league progression, the way he was coming up, the way he was playing levels at a young age and being a very competent hitter for a oh, are you are you doing the he's older so he's better uh, line? Is is that what we're going? No, with for I'm a scouting just saying report that here. You have you have guys go through ups and downs in their major league career. And you're looking at a guy who did that as a 22 year old. This wasn't a small sample in 2017. The guy had 550 plate appearances. Like he was a very solid. It's a, you know, it's a 89 OPS plus. He was an average hitter for a shortstop as a 22 year old with exceptional defensive value. Like he was, he was a, in 2017, he was above average as a hitter for one month. It was June. He had a 406 up, a batting average on balls in play, had an OPS of 850, and the rest of it was like at best having a low 700 OPS in, in those months. And well, he actually put a 759 
on base percentage uh, OPS in in August. But like even at that point, he hit 259, 302 and was just able to hit for some power. Um, But like. I just you're you're overstating your case about 2017. It would like I get what you're saying that he's shown an ability over short stints and nobody is throwing the towel in, but I have a really hard time saying that you could look at his swing last year and say that you're seeing a lot of room for like a, a lot of signs that he is a really like even, even a league average hitter. Well, are we talking league average for a shortstop or are we talking league average talking for a league, hitter? I'm talking league average. Oh, I, I think that he kind of tops out around league average. And by the way, league average for a shortstop has gone way up because you've got pretty much a golden generation of shortstops coming in right now. Yeah, that's true. The the shortstop adjustment isn't as big as it used to be. The catcher adjustment keeps getting bigger, but the, the shortstop adjustment's not. I don't know. I mean, looking at his month by month in 2017, I just pulled it up. I mean, you have one month where he's under a 700 OPS. He had a 600, 620 OPS in... In May. Other than that, 706, 848, 701, 759, 749. He he had one truly bad month. He had one truly great month. The rest of it was just like a solid, fine hitting shortstop attached to tremendous defensive value. Your on base percentages for those months 274, 309, 370, right? Quite good. 406 uh, batting average on balls in play 326 302 357 so outside of maybe two months his on base percentage was dreadful the vast majority of his on base like his his ops value in 2017 was the fact that he could actually like and he was selling out quite a bit but he was able to hit for power he hit 15 homers that year the -hmm. fact that that's where his ops value came from and even in that case his his R his WRC plus was eighty six. Yeah, so I think Ryan, you're doing a lot of box score scouting, which you know we've tried to go back and say, well, hold on a second, uh, you're p- other people can't see this. I can see you're rolling your eyes about it, but we were talking about how Arcia looks at the plate and some of the issues he has with his swing, and that doesn't go away just because you're citing twenty seventeen. No, he looked worse in 2018 for most of the year than he did in 2017. And JP said, even though he looked more comfortable at the end of the season, there were still issues with his approach. I would need to go back and look. I thought I thought he looked fine at the end of the season. But then again, that always gets clouded by the fact that he's productive. Everything looks better when a guy's out there hitting the ball like he was in after he came back up. I guess like, if that's how you watch the game. I never thought his it, swing looked good late in the season. It didn't look his swing looked if we would have been Cubs fans terrible earlier in the season. Yeah, but if we would have been Cubs fans watching what Arcia was doing in that play in game, I would have lost my mind because he didn't well, look and, gr- and they did, Steve. Oh, they they, did. I, I know they did. I just wanted to bring it up again, <laughs> but for good reason because Orlando Arcia was winning a game and you didn't look at him doing that and say, Well, how do you stop a player like this? No, but there's a reason that Orlando Arcia was a top 20 prospect by the time he got Agreed. to the end of his prospect run. And a big part of that was it looked like besides everybody knew the phenomenal defense was there and it looked like he had a chance to be a solid big league hitter 
at shortstop had a, like had a chance that's why he that's why he got those rankings like you don't just get that ranking because you don't look like you're going to be an offensive player well but you give, don't get to just keep that ranking when you start creating a big league resume and it's showing that you're not the top end of what people are hoping you become no but what he did at age 22 still exists it isn't last year now but what he did at age 22 and 2017 still exists. I know. And you think that because someone's older, they're better. So, so last year of all hitters in Major League Baseball who accumulated at least 200 plate appearances, Orlando Arcia had the fourth worst DRC plus in the league. It was a 58 or 59 means he was 41 percent worse than the league average hitter. He was worse than Jeff Mathis. Sure. I feel like I'm going through the Gene Segura experience all over again. Where, but Gene, Segura, but Gene Segura, I made an argument for three years that he looked like a good hitter and that everyone was quoting numbers at me. And I said, he looks like a good hitter. And then he went elsewhere and was really good. And everyone was like, wow, he looks like he got better. And I was like, well, Jesus, no fucking or no. <laughs> yeah, no crap. Um, and like at this point, you're looking at Orlando RC. If you saw Orlando RC have the season that he had last year and he was a prospect, everyone would have looked at him and said, like, I don't I don't know how he's going to hit. Yes, it, it's concerning, but like we shouldn't be ready to write him off as no, a well, nobody's saying no, cut him from the roster. Well, you did. That was the prefaced question here. Was no, it like, wasn't. How, is he long for this team was what you asked. He said, no, no. You are no, he said, if he produces what he did at the plate last year, is that somebody that the Brewers can carry over a long season? Nobody is saying that Orlando Arcia can't get better. Okay, that's that's fair. Then, are you gonna admit you lost? (laughs) (laughs) Okay, we we do have a question. You're accusing me of fighting the internet. Yeah, (laughs) okay, we have a a Patreon question from Adam Post. Yes, uh, what do you guys know about non roster invitees? Uh, do any of them have a chance of making the opening day roster this year? Well, they actually they just got Jay Jackson from uh, he had he had a couple of years in in Japan where he actually was quite good. He's they're bringing him in as a non roster reliever. And one of the nice things that I learned about Jay Jackson from the internet a couple of days ago is he was so popular in Japan and so good that he has a he has a logo. Oh, I was I was hoping for a theme song like Eric Thames. Oh, I don't know if he has a theme song. I hope he has a theme song. But what he does is he has an actual he has a it's a little round face with a with a beard. And that's his logo for Jay Jackson. Okay, nice. That would be good to see. Looking at some of the other non roster invitees that are out there, uh, Josh Tomlin looks interesting to me. I know there was an article this weekend that he had spent uh, nine days at driveline and working with them on improving his just overall game and, and what he does. And Tomlin is a really interesting guy. They, the Brewers signed him to a, a minor league deal a couple weeks ago now, and he has really low walk rates. Like he walks hardly anybody. He also has really low strikeout rates, especially for this era where everybody's striking people out. But there seems like there could potentially be some utility there for the Brewers. The one thing that stands out about this, though, is it's going to be really hard for them to carry any of these non-roster invitees because they're already dealing with some some crunches as far as who can be on the roster. Though that did ease up a little bit this week when they got an extra year of they got an extra option year on uh, Adrian Hauser. 
because we were wondering if he was going to have to be on the big league roster to start the year because he, he didn't have any options left. And now he magically, I don't know how that happens, but he magically a fourth option appeared. So yeah, JP, we've talked in the past about getting decent non-roster invitees. Uh, part of doing that is giving guys legitimate shots, I guess. Is, is there a place on this roster where they can give someone like that a legitimate shot where they don't have too much talent or too much talent locked in, I guess. Yeah. I think it's going to have to be the pitching staff, right? I mean, you've got so many pitchers that have options that you can figure out a way to carry somebody if you want to, right? We talked about that with the Wade Miley situation. Um, If Josh Tomlin comes in and just looks extremely, extremely good and they want to put somebody like Corbin Burns in the bullpen again, and they want to send one of the relievers down to AAA and just kind of keep them in the shuttle squad, they can absolutely do that. Um, and it'll be interesting to see if, you know, are they going to be able to come in and have somebody who's a non-roster reliever like, you know, I just mentioned Jay Jackson, but like he is he's somebody who just found three years of really good success in Japan. And we've seen a lot of pitchers come back from Japan and have either, you know, rediscovered their command or they were able to kind of find success in a, in a, in, um, you know, a different environment. And we, so isn't that what like Cameron Lowe came back from Japan and was able to, to carve out a couple of years with the Brewers that way too. Yep. He was a guy who came back from Japan. Um, you know, we've seen like miles Nicholas really have success coming back from Japan in a, in a major way. So it's a, it's a path that is being worn now more than maybe it was in the past where guys go to Japan or go to Korea as Eric Thames did and then work their way back. Well, and the, and the thing that you always have to remember about the, like the Japanese baseball league and, and things like that is you've got a lot of guys who um, can work the count quite well. Um, but yeah, Jackson had a 171 ERA in 2016, 203 and then 276, all working out of the bullpen. He was striking over striking out over a batter per inning. And it'll be interesting to see what he comes in in terms of like whether or not his stuff is any good. Um but he's never really been able to find a lot of success and um at least in the in the states, but Brewers fans might remember the fact that he I, I think it was like 2014, 2013, 2013, 2014. He he was with uh, AAA Nashville for a little bit as well, but he he wasn't able to quite make it into the the big league squad. Um, so he's got a little bit of a history in in the NL Central. Obviously, he came through with the Chicago Cubs for quite a long time, and then I think came up with the Padres a little bit before going to Japan. But it'll be interesting to see what they've got coming in. I don't remember all of the other non roster invitees. You've got Tomlin. You've got Jay Jackson. Um, Angel Perdomo is a guy that they brought in. They've got Perdomo. They've got a couple of guys that are probably going to be good AAA uh, kind of a roster. I don't want to say roster filler, but but good, um, good quality baseball veterans who can come in and help the Brewers young pitchers in AAA, right? Yeah, yeah, so it'll be interesting to follow that through the spring. And I want to get to uh, one last question here from twi- on Twitter. Uh, Brew Crew TSSC asks, would a change to the CBA that pushes money into players' prime years make it more likely that a small market team would field a team of aging veterans slash journeyman type players instead of youngsters they tend to now? So, I, And we're kind of getting to this point with uh, 
negotiations between the Players Association and Major League Baseball, um, it's going to come to a head at some point, and likely we should expect a labor stoppage, don't you think? Yeah, it's all going to come down to whether or not the union can come up with leverage to get some of the things they want to get. What can they come up with? Because they've let so much slide over the past two to three CBA negotiations. You can't just get that stuff back. You have to have some sort of something to take to the bargaining table. Otherwise, the owners are just going to say no. Yeah, and we've seen with the way that free agents have been treated at this point, they aren't getting their money once they hit free agency. Um, I I guess what are changes that need need to be made so A, players can get paid, but B, we can somehow still keep a a certain amount of competitive balance in baseball? I think one of the prime things that needs to be done is there needs to be an effort at getting more money to younger players, uh, starting in the minor leagues. Like That's the biggest issue right now in terms of just how screwed up the game is, that minor leaguers at the A-ball level are making below minimum wage given when you look at how much time they're putting in at the ballpark, they don't even get paid for spring training. Like they get a per diem and that's it. They don't even make a salary in spring training. Those sorts of things have to be fixed. But once even you get to the major league level, the major league minimum right now, and it sounds weird to say, but at $500,000 a year is really ridiculously low. And if you start boosting that minor league or the major league minimum, it starts to have a ripple effect on the rest of the market in a ton of ways. Because if guys are making a base salary of a million minimum or 1.5, something like that, it decreases the amount of leverage teams have over players to get those first contracts where guys are looking for that security, which we, we saw this week with guys like Aaron Nola and Luis Severino signing and there being some blowback to that where people were saying hey you guys shouldn't be giving up like these team-friendly conditions well it's their life it's their career they get one career so they have to take their security where they can get it and that's why like we saw jonathan lucroy sign a a a very team-friendly extension so he could get his guaranteed life-changing money up front and it worked out great for the brewers but as soon as you start giving less or more money to younger players, it changes the calculus on how willing they are to trade away those early years where they really start to make money in arbitration and early free agency. So I think that that, more than anything, changing the minor or the major league minimum would help a lot. And that's going to be a big fight with ownership because ownership is not going to want to like double that or triple that, which is really probably where it needs to be and where it should be. So that's that's going to be a big fight. I I have a feeling. In in my mind, it needs to they need to address the uh, the team years of control. Um, whether or not that means you know making arbitration available for a longer period of time, um, adding another year of arbitration, whether that means um, you know making it only four or five years of team control. Like there are a lot of things that I would like to see, but I'm just trying to figure out like what are the realistic kind of changes that can be made kind of going forward here in the next CBA. And ultimately it's going to be, are is the players union going to be willing to take something that actually makes structural changes or are they going to be trying to f- just fiddle around the edges? 
Um, it's about understanding where the core pieces are in this labor in the labor negotiation. Can you create a time in which people are being paid for their production when they're productive so they don't have to have an argument about why they can't get paid in free agency? And the largest argument used to be you were overpaid in free agency because you were underpaid early. That's no longer happening. You have to make sure that you're paid accordingly. You can't have your 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 salary is artificially depressed because that puts a lot of things into into out of whack, right? But to answer the question about would you see if if money starts going to younger players, and when we talk about kind of fielding this young homegrown team, and that's a way to you know build cost certainty, and that's a way to kind of build a long term um, dynasty. If you are going to be forced to pay those people early. I think, yeah, I think you probably would see some small market teams looking at journeymen and veterans to say like, you know what, here are some players that might still have a good year or two left in the tank, but aren't really valued on the free agent market. Are you those sorts of players? You might absolutely see them start to take some guys coming in from Japan and Korea much more. You might see them get a little bit more creative or aggressive in the international market. You might, and there's going to be vast changes in terms of what's happening between baseball and Cuba or baseball in Cuba and baseball in the United States, um, you're going to see people still be creative in how they are attracting talent. But I do think that you you could see aging veterans and journeyman type um, kind of going to small market teams that are looking for value because it could swing the other way. Well, one of the things that really makes it's putting aging veterans in a tough position right now that made the major league minimum is so low that teams look at it and they go, well, if we can get a guy straight out of AAA who gives us 80, 90% of what this veteran can give us, but is going to cost us, you know, one tenth of that price, then it, for teams, it just makes a lot of sense for them to take the kid out of AAA, pay him the major league minimum. Once you start boosting that amount that you if, that you're you're expecting to pay uh, a, a kid out of AAA, then it it creates a situation where veterans look more attractive by comparison. Where right, teams right. start going, okay, we're willing to pay you because we're not going to get such a huge discount on the guy we would otherwise employ for that spot. Right. And I, and I understand what you're trying to do. You're trying to look at a time. You're trying to look at something in which you can address, you know, making some of the, the, the older players a little bit more attractive by, you know, showing the difference between them and AAA by um, raising the, the pay floor for these guys that making the minimum. Right. And you're doing it because you're trying to create a way in which the brewers can still and small market teams more generally can still take advantage of younger players being under team control, but kind of feel better about doing it because they're making, you know, more money. But there there needs to be something in which people are actually being paid for what they're producing rather than creating a structural system in which they have to not do that. Right. Like, and I understand that that is going to affect small market teams and it's going to make it harder for them to do it. But there are other ways to do it. You can, and yes, there is not going to be any kind of scenario in which large market teams want to be taxed to, to fund smaller market teams. But you can create ways to do that. You can look at a situation in which, you know what, maybe small market teams are going to struggle a little bit. Like, maybe they are. 
and and like I understand that that's really hard in, in terms of a, a in terms of fans to be able to do these sorts of things. But like, if you're actually there's a difference between fixing the labor market and trying to make sure that players are being paid for their production, and there's a difference between saying you want to make sure that players can be paid while protecting all of the 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 competitive balance that is being able to be created through keeping players from making money that they would make on the open market. Yeah. Right. I, it's a delicate I still balance say, that has to be struck. Yeah. You have and, to strike a balance in this. And we were talking about this on Twitter over the weekend. And like I said, I say, I still think that what the, the players association needs to fight for is anybody on the 40 man is treated like someone on the active roster. So they start getting their service time accrued, which means that it's going to get your top tier players to the major leagues faster. Once they're ready. You don't give teams a reason to keep them down to delay service time. So, you know, it might have some long-term effect where you don't quite get to keep guys, you know, on your major league roster as long. You don't get that entire six seasons if you need to keep them down in the minors a little bit longer. But at least it would get those guys into the free agency pool a little bit earlier um, without teams trying to manipulate any service time or anything like that. Well, and they should and they should be about they should be abolishing uh, draft pools and and draft caps yeah i mean that's really a problem there's absolutely no reason that you can walk into a situation and then tell players that they're going to have their their salaries artificially you know depressed there's no reason there's no argument for it but it's in every sport they've all gone that way and i don't i don't know how you could argue to get that taken away at this point i mean i I know how you could argue for it but i don't know how the players association could argue for it and win that battle yeah, absolutely. Which is why I think the vast my the what I would see happening and and potentially being possible for the CBA is adding a fourth arbitration year, or or something to what you're saying in terms of like it, once you're on the forty man roster, your service time starts. And well, and I, I think that would be more fair. You know, when we saw the number of guys that were shuttled up and down in the majors last season, um, instead of this stop and start for their service time, like. Let's just treat they're all a part of the major league squad. Let's treat them as that. They might not all be active and available from game to game, but they're all part of the major league squad for the entire season. You could also create a system in which free agency starts at a designated age. Right. Right. Oh, sure. Depending on how long a player's been. This is something my brother has brought up a lot, actually, that if you did something where you get a certain number of years from the time a guy signs, so, and it would be different necessarily for high school kids and college kids because they're they come in at very different points. But you could do something like that where you basically give a team no incentive as soon as a guy's ready, bring them up and have them in the major leagues. There's no incentive to keep them down at that point because as the day they signed, their free agency is a fixed point. So, Get, like, your, get, get that, your at-bats while you can, yeah. So, anyways, we're going to wrap the show up for this week, uh, but we have a few new patrons we want to thank. Yep, a uh, huge shout-out to Lucas Stoller, Patty Gilger. I believe it's Gilger. If it's Gilger, I apologize. And uh, and Timothy Congleton. And so, thank you to everybody for that. Hopefully, you enjoy the, the Minor League podcast that came out last week. And um, now that football season is, is over, some of the other journalists that we've been talking about trying to get on are going to be a little bit more free as baseball kind of turns to top of mind for them. So hopefully we'll have some good interviews coming up for the Magnet League pod going forward. Yeah, so look forward to that. Uh, as always, you know, just 
uh, check out patreon.com slash MKE tailgate to join. Again, we have our $2 level. If you just want to slide in to uh, get your questions slotted in at the top of the queue each week. Otherwise the ball and glove patrons, uh, they get the minor league extra podcast, which like I said, it's worth it to get it when it comes out every month, but also you get all the back episodes, which are still worth listening to as Apple. always. Yeah. I would say absolutely it is, but also the, t- the $2 thing, like buy us a coffee. Yeah, exactly. Right? It, yeah. Well, it, we appreciate it. it. It keeps us going. Trust me. It, it takes a little time every week. So, uh, we enjoy doing it. We want to keep bringing the podcast to everybody. And we've, and we've got Steve battling through the flu zone this week, right? Like, give him a shout out for, for being a trooper and kind of making sure that Ryan and I don't yell at each other for an hour. We only just yell at each other for a half hour. Yeah, exactly. So uh, anyways, remember, you can follow us on Twitter at MKE Tailgate. You can also submit questions to Milwaukee's.tailgate at gmail.com or through our Facebook page for Milwaukee's Tailgate Baseball Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play and we're on Spotify and you can also find us on all the other apps with Pocket Cast, Overcast, all that kind of stuff too. Uh, you can leave reviews and help people find the podcast so please do that. Uh, thanks for listening and look for us again next week on Milwaukee's Tailgate.